I'd like to let you into a little secret here. Um, I was so excited to have Michael and Avril up, uh, up at the front. And Michael and Avril, this passage is the passage that Uta and I chose for our wedding uh, nearly 25 years ago. So we're halfway there. Um, but I, um, it, it holds a particular place in my heart, this passage. It's an, a majestic, immense, golden passage a passage that is at the heart of Christian discipleship and living, and I, we're going to plunge into it for just a, a short while. But I remember uh, on our wedding days, not a lot I remember about it, actually. Um, it was a bit of a whirlwind, but um, I do remember the, the preacher, when preaching, a friend of ours, um, preaching on, that, on the passage and, and offering it to us as a, as a portrait, as a, as a sort of picture that we were sort of spiritually, mentally... Um, to hang in our house. Um, pictures can be very strong things, can't they? Um, I remember growing up, there was a, a picture in, in my parents' house in the living room that was a, a, a painting of a sort of rural scene, perhaps somewhat idyllic, um, but a picture of horses and um, by some famous artist or something I discovered later. And I, I just remember looking at it for hours and and sort of plunging into this, this painting and, and getting the impression that the, the painting there above the mantelpiece was, was almost giving atmosphere to the whole room. You know how that can happen with paintings? You feel after a while that the painting is defining the room, not the room, the painting. And, um, and, and that, was, that, that was my impression as I was growing up. And it, it sort of came home to me a, a, a few years later when I lived in Russia. And uh, in St. Petersburg, I was able to go to uh, visit the Hermitage, where they have a remarkable painting, many of you will know, by Rembrandt called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And I remember uh, visiting the, the Hermitage and, and, and sitting in the room where this painting is. Now, you need to understand, it is enormous. It's a really big painting, and it's up on the wall. Has anyone seen it in the Hermitage? No? You have, yes. Um, and I, I spent... Um, a lot of time before it. Now, I have to say that it, there were reflections and things on the glass, not always easy to see, but it's a painting that draws you in. It's a picture of, of the young um, son kneeling before his father and the father putting the arm, his arms around the son. And the more you look at it, the more you draw into this picture. But what struck me then was the way in which that painting, little by little, seemed to sort of take over the room. It started defining the room. As I was watching and looking at that painting, it felt like it was, it was a royal throne room. A normal um, museum room took on an extraordinary um, feel because of the painting that was there. And good paintings do that. They take you elsewhere, don't they? And actually, if my memory serves me correctly, um, next to, at least at the time, next to the, the, the Rembrandt was another Rembrandt of Jesus coming down off the cross. And I felt like there was almost like a, a conversation beginning to happen between this painting and other paintings in the room, which was just sort of going beyond the, the bounds of the, of the one painting. And um, it was an extraordinary experience. Now, Paul, writing to the Philippian church, at the heart of his letter, offers them a portrait. It's a portrait of Jesus Christ, which is so incredible that the more you look at it, 
the more it invades the space. And the more that portrait is the focus of your attention, the more it flows out into every aspect of your life. And that was Paul's intention. Paul's life had been changed by Jesus Christ. And the more Paul meditated on Jesus, the more Jesus overflowed into Paul's life. And this is Paul's longing for the Philippians. And I think it's God's longing for us. And so we have an amazing passage this morning, which is at the heart of an amazing letter. And it's like a portrait. And my prayer for us all this morning is as we look at that portrait, that it would overflow and it would start to give color to the whole of our lives, to all those other pictures in the room that make up the, the living space of our lives. Um, Paul, as we have discovered, those of us who've been following the, 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 this letter, had a particular um, attachment to the Philippian church. It was not for, for once, it was not a problem that he was addressing in writing to them. It was um, quite the opposite. He wanted to encourage them and thank them for their goodness. There's, there's such love in his words. He's so positive. But there's one phrase in our passage which is, which is really interesting, um, which helps us to see that his, it's, a, it's a letter that's absolutely framed with joy. And yet there's one phrase there in verse two which gives a hint that his joy isn't quite 100%. In verse two it says, then make my joy complete. Which implies that it's not quite complete, doesn't it? Yeah? Like the, the, this is an amazing church. They've loved Jesus, they've responded to Jesus, they're walking with Jesus, but there's just a little thing missing. And um, I find that incredibly encouraging. That even this church still had a little bit of a way to go. And the problem was this, the problem was that they were human. They were drawn in the same way that all of us are, to themselves. And I think we can read through between the lines. When he says, when he says do nothing out of selfish ambition, my hunch is that they probably were doing things out of selfish ambition, yeah? When he says in the next verse, verse four, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others, my hunch is that that was an underlying issue. When later on um, in verse 14, he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. My hunch is that there was that in the church. It's actually quite encouraging because even the New Testament churches wrestled with issues uh, relational issues, how to work out their faith in their relationships. And so Paul is thanking them. He is rejoicing with them in the good things that God is doing. But he is also challenging them in this passage because there's a little extra thing they really need to get right. And that is their attitude. And he throws out to them a picture of a new attitude that if taken on, it will change their lives and it will change their church and it will change the world. He's offering them a portrait of Jesus Christ. And he's saying to them, put this portrait at the heart of your lives 
And as you allow yourselves to dwell on that portrait, it will overflow into the rest of your life. There are two particular areas that Paul is concerned about. At the beginning of our passage, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, or 1 to 4, he's concerned about their unity, the way in which they relate to each other inside the church. And then towards the end of the passage, from verses 12 onwards, he's concerned with their witness. In other words, the way in which they relate to the world outside the church. And the witness that the church will be able to give or not give as a community with regards to the world, one in, one out. And in both cases, the way they're to live with each other and the way that they are to live in the world, it comes out, it flows out of the portrait of Jesus Christ. Now, um, I just came back, I was for two days in Paris and um, I'd been invited to an extraordinary uh, gathering in, in Paris. It's a, it was just so encouraging. It's a sort of um, a big congress that they, they now organize once a year in the Catholic Church um, called uh, the Mission Congress. And it's on mission and, and praying for evangelism. And, and last year when they did it, they had 1,000 people there. And this year when they did it, they had 3,500 people there in Paris from all over France. Isn't that amazing? Catholics just singing the praises of God. And, um, and I was able to address a group of 170 priests from all over France about how you renew church and how you seek God in a new way for evangelism. And it was so encouraging. But at the end of one of the sessions, one of the priests came up to me and he said, why is it that we trust the same Lord but we're not united? And I guess I, I didn't know quite what to say except that, you know, my longing, as I'm sure yours is, is for a united church worldwide because our, our, our churches need that, but our world needs it. You know, I mean, we are in a world that is just so dispersed and so separated. We don't need more of that in the church. We need a church that can model something different, don't we? And if the church is to play any role in the world, it has to have credibility, it has to work as one. And what's true of the worldwide church is true of local church. You know, if we're to have any credibility, we have to be learning to live together. And I guess you have a longing inside you like I do, that church would be a place where we, um, we dare to, to, to develop models where we can handle our differences in godly ways, where we dare to go beneath the surface, where we dare to forgive, where we dare to be something different. But you know, there is only one way to do that. Or think about witnessing. Um, this week I was at the Combined Churches prayer meeting and I'd been given, they, they sort of dish out different subjects to pray about and I was asked to lead them praying for Brexit. So I gulped and I thought, okay, Lord, well, there you go. And I thought, as I was preparing, I thought, isn't that tragic? That there's an area where we can't even agree when we pray. You know, Brexit, for whatever you think about it, has revealed in our society 
deep fractures, deep pain, a fear that some will suffer because they're the weak ones, the left out ones, suspicion of difference. Don't you long like me that the church would be a place where we can be united in longing to model something different? Where we can pray together for God's kingdom to come beyond politics. Because we know that real peace doesn't come through politics. Real unity doesn't come through. Um, superficial things, they're all good, but ultimately it's in Christ Jesus, isn't it? And so as I was leading these guys in praying for, pre- for Brexit, I was, I was thinking, my goodness, Lord, touch my heart, because I judge people so quickly. But you know, there is only one way we can be united when we're different. Or take a different example. Think about our families. You know, parents, those of us that are parents, we long for our children to navigate the troubles and distractions and temptations and seductions that are around, don't we? That's what our prayers are made up of. We long as parents to be able to, 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 to see our children getting to that point where they can stand firm in Jesus Christ, witnessing and, and following Jesus. There is only one way. Or think about our workplaces. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, your life as a Christian should make non-Christians question their disbelief in God. Don't we long in our workplaces to to have such an attitude that, that work is not an idol, but an opportunity to show that we worship God through our work, that we can be creative, that we can bless others. But there is only one way Friends, there is only one way, and that is when we have the mindset of Jesus Christ. It's the only way to find unity. It's the only way to witness. It's the only way to be a a sign of God's kingdom. It's to have the mindset of Jesus Christ. And so Paul in this passage, as he's talking to these Christians, He puts in front of them a picture. And what a picture it is. You have to understand that, you know, Jesus in this picture is going downhill, yeah? If you look with me at those those verses from verse, um, verse six onwards, Jesus, this is the picture, being in very nature God. You cannot start higher than that, can you? And yet when you get to, when you get to verse, um, verse eight, he's come down. He's come down, he's come down, a servant, humbling himself, and then he goes as far as death, death on a cross. This is a picture that is radically different from what we see around us in the world. I mean, I've got nothing wrong with good ambition, nothing, nothing against um, the desire for us to have good lifestyles, for us to want the best for our children, for us to want to, but our society frames Um, It's ideals in terms of upward movements, ascending, and Jesus frames things in terms of downward mobility, downward movements. Now, if we think that's radical today, you need to understand how it was in the ancient world. You know, the ancient world despised humility. Humility was not a virtue for the ancients. It was something that was actually a hindrance 
because their aim, as any of you know from classical literature, the aim in the classical mindset was to achieve something, was to have glory. That's what classical tragedies are all about. People having glory and honor and then losing it somehow. And the ultimate person who, who, who personified that sort of, that sort of success in, in getting glory and status would be the king, the ruler. Now, now in Philippi, which was in Macedonia, probably the most obvious example of that was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great uh, inherited the throne from his father, Philip of Macedonia. It was the throne of Macedonia. It was the throne of the area of Philippi. In fact, Philippi was named after Philip of Macedonia. So Philip's son was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, by the age of 20, was, was, was ruler of Greece. By the time he died, aged 33, only 33, he had subdued all the nations around him. He was the recognized ruler of the world, Alexander the Great. He'd reached the top. That's the model the Philippians are used to. Through military conquests, through success, through, through strategic planning, he'd got the top-notch job. Or, or perhaps in, in Paul's world, it would have been Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, and the Philippians would have resonated with that as well. They were a Roman colony. Caesar Augustus, who, who, who in his life managed to subdue all the peoples and create peace in the Roman Empire, but at what price? It was through war, but he got there. And he was seen as the so, so much the, the, the ideal of glory that he was deified and seen as a god. Augustus Caesar, Philip, or, um, Alexander the Great, images of the, of the search for glory and status that is actually not that far from the sorts of obsessions we see around us all the time in society for status, for recognition, for identity, for celebrity, for recognition. Be someone. Now the thing is that typically the world offers a trajectory therefore that is up, 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 up until we make a mistake and then it's down. Jesus offers a trajectory that is down, 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 down until he offers his life and then it's up. It's an extraordinary inversion of what the world thinks of as its objective. It's a completely different mindset. Now, there are one or two really interesting things in this poem because actually what Paul does is he takes what was one of the earliest Christian hymns and he inserts it into his letter. Verses 6 to 11 are probably scanned slightly differently in your Bibles. Do they look a bit different from the rest of the passage? It's because they're in, probably inserted in. It's a poem, two different verses of the same poem, very ancient poem, celebrating Christ. And, and in those, those few verses, those two sort of halves of the poem, we have a picture of the gospel which is just incredible. And, and let me just point out one or two words in this, because we could spend hours on it, but we don't have time. But here's the first thing. It starts, who being in very nature God? Can you see that? Verse six, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. The word nature in Greek is morphe. It, it means shape, yeah? Like morphology today. 
It means shape, space. He was in his very shape, God. Now look on with me to um, the next verse, verse seven. Jesus, who had everything, who was in the shape of God, he had everything. He then made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. The word is the same, morphe, shape. You see that? Jesus had the shape of God. He was God. He didn't need to prove anything. You can't start much higher than God. He had glory. He had power. He didn't need to draw on anyone or anything for his own personal satisfaction. There's an interesting lesson for us about humility. It starts with knowing who you are. It's not about negating. It's about being sure of your identity. And Jesus was, but he didn't grasp it. The word actually here is translated, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That's a bit of a, I'm sorry, but that's a bit of a weak translation. The translation means grasp. And it's an echo back to Adam in the Garden of Eden when he wanted to grasp. He wanted to take something in order to make himself someone. See that? Now Jesus is the opposite. He knows who he is, and so instead of grasping, he gives. He gives his life. And he takes on the shape of a servant. That's so interesting. What an example. It's all about humbling here. It's all about going down, not for the sake of it, but in order to identify with those around. So Jesus takes on the shape of those he's with. He identifies with them. That's extraordinary. That's what our God is like. He takes on our shape. He shares himself with us. He comes close. But there's another, there's another word here we see. Verse seven, taking the very nature of a servant. See that, verse, that word there? The word in Greek is doulos. It means slave. And we need to understand that the objective of the slave in the Roman and the ancient world was not to do things for himself, but was always to better his master, okay? The slave always did things in order that the master should be lifted up. Do you understand that? Okay, the, the slave's objective and purpose was always to serve the master so the master could be honored. Now here's what Jesus does. Although he's got everything, he empties himself of his rights so that he can take on the shape of a slave whose objective is what? to serve those around and better them. As a slave, he comes alongside me, he comes alongside you, and his objective is to better us, to lift us up. He gives so that we can be empowered. He's not thinking about himself, he's giving, he's giving so that we can become something. An extraordinary picture, radical, different, and then, not only that, but, but then as we, we move on, we see that he's willing to humble himself right down to the bottom to give of himself. Not just for the sake of it. He doesn't just become a slave and then, and then humble himself and, and come down to death, even death on a cross, just for the sake of it. He does it because through the cross, he is going to give life 
to those who trust in him. And so something happens around verse seven there. There's just this, it says, therefore God. God exalted him. Can you see that? So this isn't just a downward thing. This is a, this is a parabolic thing. It comes down and then something happens and up we go. And by that extraordinary movement of Jesus, God who comes close to us and comes and shares in our suffering and gives his life on the cross for us, God then gives him back something. He doesn't earn it. God exalts him. And we end up at the end of this passage with Jesus, it says there, verse nine, can you see that? God exalted him to the highest place. Now understand, Jesus gave up his place, didn't he? He gave up his role. He gave up his status to become alongside us. And God gave him back a place. But not only that, it then says, and gave him the name. Jesus became nameless, just one amongst many. And God gave him a name through the resurrection, through life coming back. God gave him a name and lifted him up and gave him the name above every name. And then what about right at the end? And so that every tongue might confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. There's glory. Listen, friends, at the end of this story, we get everything people long for. A place, a status, a name, and glory. But it has not come the normal way. It comes through humility, through a self-offering, through a downward path. That is our God. He never forces his agenda. He comes down to us. But here's the amazing thing. He does it all so we can join him and be lifted up. So we can be met in that, on that curve and then taken up. We also have a place, a name. We also reflect God's glory in what we do. This is an amazing song, don't you think? Can't you imagine the early Christians singing this worship song? This is our God. Friends, the others, they, they celebrated Alexander the Great, the king, Caesar Augustus, the king. This is a picture of the king, Jesus. Real kingship. God's kingship comes through sacrificial love through gentle obedience, joining people where they are, taking on their shape, lifting them up, giving them a place, a name, glory. Oh, I just love it. I, I, just, I can imagine the early Christians singing this song, the heart of their faith. But here's what Paul does. He takes this song and then he says, that has got to work out in your lives. It's not enough to believe that, to sing that, to celebrate that. It needs to come deep inside. And so the verse that it all turns on is verse five. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. This isn't just to celebrate Jesus. This is because we're asked to have the same mindset. Not to hold on to our status, but to empty ourselves. To get alongside, to take other people's shape, to honor them, 
to become servants so they may be lifted up in God's economy to give ourselves so that through us, others might see. We're to take on the mindset of Christ. This is not just a picture to observe and to thank God for. This is a picture that draws us in. We're meant to be part of this picture, friends. And in our relationships with each other, we're meant to have the mindset of Jesus Christ. Now, all of that would be very well and good. The portrait sort of overflowing into our lives. But it could be a bit discouraging because this is fairly radical stuff. I mean, if Paul was just saying, be like Christ, sometimes in our translations it says, you know, sort of follow the example of Christ. But this isn't actually quite what Paul is saying. He's saying something much more profound than that. Because the verse actually doesn't say just follow his example. Okay? The verse says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as is in Jesus Christ. That's what it says literally, okay? The same mindset as is in Jesus Christ. Now, this is really interesting. Christians are called to be in Jesus Christ. They're not called to imitate alone. They're called to be in him. All right? And so what Paul is talking about is that those who are in Christ begin to have his mindset. Now, we started out by talking about um, marriage and, and Michael and, and Avril, okay? So, me and Uta, we've been walking together for a good few years, and so there are moments when we don't even need to say things, we understand each other, yeah? There are moments where Uta gets a little bit frustrated with me, she gets a bit angry, and so she gives me a piece of her mind. She gives me a piece of her mind, okay? Listen, because we are in Christ, God gives us a piece of his mind. It's not just that we have to imitate, it's that we have Christ in us, and we are in him. Do you understand? And as we walk with Christ, we become like Christ. He gives us a piece of his mind. By the Spirit, we actually have Jesus Christ in us. We are in him. So it's not just about imitating, which is great in itself, but it's actually about walking close, being drawn in so that little by little, our lives take on the shape of Jesus Christ. And it's that that enables us then to join other people and take on their shape. And it's that that will change the way we relate to each other. It's that that will mean as a church we can witness in our relationships to the world. See it in verse two, okay? And I'm coming to the end, don't worry. We're coming to the end. It's just so good. But then he says, listen, this is what he says to the church and they're seeking their unity. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. Do you see that? Like-minded, okay? Now that might give the impression we've got to agree. It's not what he means at all. It's exactly the same word as he uses in verse five where he says, have the same mindset. You understand that? It's as we have the mindset of Christ, we discover that together we have the same mindset. Our minds are set on the same thing. It doesn't mean we always agree. 
but we know we have Christ in us. And so we are one. We know we're indwelt by the Spirit so we can love each other. Despite our differences, we have the same mindset. Thank God it doesn't mean we've got to always agree. But it does mean we see each other as, 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 as example, parts of Christ. We all have his mind and so we can share and have the same mindset in Christ. God gives us a piece of his mind. That's so exciting, because that means that when I'm with you, I can discover the part of God's mind that's in you. That's great, Magda. Or you, Michael. Or you, Betty. Yeah, I mean, because I haven't got all of it. <laughs> we need each other. That's the beautiful thing. And it happens as we put the portrait of Christ in the heart of our lives above the mantelpiece, in our living room, so that actually Jesus Christ is there in us. We're in him, we're walking with him, and little by little, that portrait defines the whole of the room that is our lives, whether it's our families or our workplaces or our church. Those areas we cannot deal with, we find too difficult. Little by little, the mind of Christ invades everything. And that's the secret to changing the church. It's the secret to changing the world. Not going up and looking for it for ourselves, but the mind of Christ. Humbling ourselves so that others may see. Doesn't that make you long for things? So this morning, let's just end by just praying that God will, will fill us, that his portrait will be there in the heart of our lives and that the power of that God living in Christ Jesus Christ the hope of glory will flow out of us to others